Rusty Quill presents. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sin Carriers, a West Side fairy tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further... It takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine for a moment the smell of rain as the clouds burst above you. It seeps into the bricks under your feet. It leaches out industrial ash and waste, making an acid that boils paint from steel and etches long lines in every concrete foundation. Smoke pipes belch out chemicals that yellow the clouds and shrivel the organs of the workers below. Workers like you who will go to the press and lathe like a mule to the yoke every day until you are too feebled or sickened to work, until you are dead. This season's story takes place shortly after the death of America, when the West was finally broken and left lame for exploitation. On the West Coast, a group of misfits are arranged by chance, incident, and intent aboard a train heading east, Killers, criminals, and outcasts all, they'll soon find the pasts they're running from may pale in comparison to the horrors of this new American West. And you'll meet them soon. But first, let me introduce myself for those of you who might be new. My name is Tyler Bell, and I'm the creator, writer, and producer of the West Side Fairy Tales. For the last half decade, my podcast has crossed the gulfs of space and time to bring you the most innovative, original horror and dark fiction experience we can. And as the podcast has evolved, 
We've grown to include music, sound effects, and other media as part of the greater West Side Fairy Tales experience. The story which you are about to embark on, Sin Carriers, is a monumental effort that has taken two full years to launch and will, by the time it's finished, comprise a nearly three-and-a-half-year effort. To that end, I'd like to personally thank all of my long-suffering patrons at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. They've been extremely patient and supportive throughout this process, and if you want to be included amongst their number, receiving fully laid-out ebooks of this story behind the scenes, peaks, and special unnamed projects that are coming soon, you should consider heading over to patreon.com slash Westside Fairy Tales to see what's going on. For those of you who won't be immediately joining us because you like to binge stories instead of experiencing them piecemeal, it should be noted this story is functionally split into four different arcs, all of which are roughly five to six episodes long. In order, they are the Departure Arc, the Grand Ball Arc, the Fetid City Arc, and the Arrival Arc. Follow us on social media by searching for the West Side Fairy Tales on your favorite platform. We're basically everywhere, and keep up to date with the release of each episode. Full archives of this podcast are also available at westsidefairytales.com. And you can find all of our great merch there if you want to support the podcast by buying a t-shirt, or even our recently released book, The Eyes Beneath My Father's House. Check that one out on Amazon as well. Well, folks, here's to a great season six, and without further ado, the first chapter of Sin Carriers, Into the Wood. Void stretched and wet its newborn mouth, ready to swallow everything. Dark it was, black, the heft and whole of it, a great shadow lurching, slouching down off the mountains to fester in the throat of the Pacific. It was smoke and the smell of hot steel, the constant noise of people creeping and crawling over each other, like maggots through old hunks of meat. The screams of children losing hands and eyes and arms and pneumatic presses and the begging of handless, armless, eyeless children packed into the orphan halls and trade galleys and every wet alley between. All their screams again when the void licked its lips and crept down from its high places to feed. There you are, Sue said quietly to herself, cleaning the shaving knife and folding it into the little pocket in her boots. She looked down over the light-speckled blackness of the city and then to the room behind her. What mess she'd made hadn't followed her out the door save a few drops on her sleeve, which she spit on and tried to rub out. Even as she did so, she saw his blood making little aqueducts of the gaps in the floorboards. It must have made something of a rainstorm in the apartments below, given the screaming that broke out. Sue sighed and looked around for an easy route off the second floor. The tenement sagged like a drunk with no wall to lean on. Scooped so bad in its middle it might have been bowing to the industrial sprawl spilling into the bay beneath her. She would have jumped if this side didn't look out over a bluff that dropped down a hundred feet onto scrub grass and rocks. She sucked her teeth, touching her tongue to the faint scar bisecting her lip, and shrugged, 
tucking her hat low over her eyes and walking down the central staircase. The brim was wide enough it would cover down to her throat if she ducked her chin, which is just what she did when a gaggle of men burst up the stairs to check on the room she'd just left. She put her hands in her pockets and slumped against the wall in the first floor landing, watching their boots thunder by. He's dead! One of them screamed. Doors slapped open throughout the tenement. She tipped her hat up to the top of the stairs and made to start walking when she noticed a man looking back down at her. Their eyes met and she ducked away, cursing under her breath when she heard him clomping down the stairs after her. You, boy, he called, grabbing her shoulder and spinning her around. He seemed startled when he realized it was a woman he'd grabbed, but that didn't slow his roll any. Uh, hey now, you know anything about that, up there? No, Sue said, giving him a second glance and then keeping her head down. Why don't you let go of my shoulder, mister? I don't recognize you. You one of Miss Latrice's girls? He asked. I ain't gonna ask again, Sue said, still looking at the ground. He touched the crown of her hat to pull it away from her face and she grabbed a handful of his privates and crushed them. He stumbled away from her, dragging her hat with him and trying to work up enough breath to yell for help. Sue grabbed his hair and then buried her knee in his face until he couldn't stand on his own anymore. Once he was good and punch drunk, she rolled him onto his back and gave him another quick boot in the side of his head, which fully knocked the fight out of him. Where's... Sue said under her breath, looking around and cursing when she saw the pale shape of her hat sinking into the dark beyond the cliff edge. She pointed at the man she'd beaten, who was muttering nonsense and trying to cover his face with a limp arm. I'll throw you down there with it, you son of a bitch. She kicked a bit of dust at him. Mind your own goddamn business next time. Stop that! A woman yelled down the line of doors from Sue. She looked up to see a young mother cleaning her baby's face with a bloody handkerchief. The woman's own poor clothing was flecked with blood. She gave her a nod and then turned to go, walking at a brisk pace and then jogging once she rounded the corner. It took her a good 20 minutes to find a safe way down to retrieve her hat. From there, the noise around the tenement was nothing more than wash water in the greater river of sound from the city. She beat the dust off the worn, pale leather and squared the brim on her head, giving a last look up to the tenement. From down here, it was surprisingly imposing, more like a manor than a sway-backed derelict. The new perspective had also revealed that what she thought was scrub grass and broken rock was actually scrub grass and the stones of a collapsed church. Not enough of it was left to tell the denomination, but it was probably Christian. Christians left churches behind the way snakes left skin, in her experience. It had been a long time since the building had fallen. Decades, probably. There didn't seem to be much in the way of good brick and lumber left. And probably those were bones now in the buildings that had sprouted up around the derelict. Sue let her fingers brush the walls of those newer structures and she passed between them and onto a sleepy row of row houses and taverns, wondering if she might feel the memories of the dead church and those bricks. She felt no echoes but the bounce and bang of pianos and other, odder instruments in the drink halls. Folks had little to do in a place like this but drink away the time between work.
Vasily dabbed his face with her handkerchief, holding tight to the guardrail with his free hand in a way that let him put pressure on his rolling stomach. The ship had only the slightest occasional yaw to its movement now that they were well past the stormy northern waters, but his entire body could feel the rise and fall of the waves as though it were still happening. A constant flux seemed to have settled over Vasily, holding him in its wet hands. Her hands were wet then, he thought to himself, coughing and again pressing the handkerchief to his forehead. The stylized red spider stitched into the silk scratched lightly at his eyebrow hairs, catching at them. The small irritation was a lighthouse for his soul, an anchor. In the direction he was facing, the direction they had come from, lightning flicked quietly from a black sky and lit upon the distant water. A bad sign if it makes no noise, the captain said. He'd been standing behind Vasily for a long moment, probably thinking of what to say. Their relationship was not a kind one, but the older man had an unfailing provincial politeness about him. Then let us sit in silence a while longer, Vasily said, running his thumb over the scarlet spider before returning the handkerchief to his pocket. The captain sighed, and they stood in the dark for a moment more with the sounds of the ocean and the rumbling steam engine beneath their feet. We need... The captain began, but the thunder struck just then, allowing Vasily a moment to turn to him. The younger man's eyes were cold and no less darkly blue than the electric-laced ocean waves. The captain shivered and adjusted the waist of his sweater. Vasily watched him dispassionately, the man was even less talkative when they were face to face. What do you want, Vanyevich? Vasily asked, in Russian this time. The captain took a deep breath and pulled himself to his full height, a good several inches over Vasily. The smaller man had to adjust his head to keep the sopping brim of his hat from between their eyes. I want you off my ship, the man said. The storms they had passed through hadn't reached these distant shores yet, but the light and misting spray had bejeweled the fibers of the captain's sweater with beads of water. The city behind him shone with what seemed like a million points of light, all of them catching in the wetness and causing the man to shine. By comparison, Vasily looked like a storm-sodden crow. He took off his hat and flicked the water onto the shipboards by his feet. I want off your ship, Captain, Vasily said, looking inside his cap for a long moment before putting it back on his head. It had been more than a month now since she'd taken his hat from him and fussed over the bowl of the crown. The memory alone was enough to make him want to crush the stupid bit of cloth in his hand and toss it overboard. It could lay beneath the waters with her, out where the silent lightning kissed the waves. He gave the captain a direct look. My passage was paid for all the way down to Baja, Vasily said. Give me back what I paid for that leg of the trip. He was surprised by how fast the captain revealed the money. The man had clearly expected this. Vasily sighed and took the bills from the captain's hand, giving a look back to the calming dark of the western seas and then walking past the man toward the coastal corona of the city ahead of them. They were making fair enough time, 
It would likely be less than an hour before the sand of those foreign shores was on his boots. What city are you leaving me in? Vasily asked. Does it matter? The captain replied. He sounded relieved now that Vasily had agreed to depart. He took the younger man's spot at the rear guard rail. Not particularly, Vasily replied. Send one of your men to my quarters when you are ready for me to disembark. He tapped his wrist against the guardrail beside the stairs the captain had used to come above decks. The steel rang like a bell. I would prefer you stay above decks, the captain said. The men would prefer it as well. I know, Vasily said, and with that he descended down into the ship. The captain nibbled his lip in frustration, finally blowing a deep breath out through his heavy mustache. This was just the last minor inconvenience at the end of a cursed trip. Better to have the little man, Vasily, off his ship and the men grumbling than risking restarting that ugliness from the Bering Strait. The berthings were lousy with mutterings of ill omens and bad blood, even mild talk of hanging the little man in retribution, but it was all just that, mutterings. The truth was the men were terrified of Vasily and his dead wife, not to mention bad-tempered and exhausted after the vicious northern storms. The captain took hold of the railing and looked out into the sea, watching another bolt of lightning dip down to touch the waters. It was far too close to be a true marker for all the horror of those five long nights. For little Vasily's wife and two of his own men all now lost forever to the sea. In his heart, he dreaded the year to come which would have him float those waters again, though he knew he would see what he'd seen again in his dreams. The great black legs writhing beneath the water, that pale face fading beneath the surface. All which is taken is taken, he told himself running over the oldest bit of seafaring advice he'd ever been given. An admonition to move on after a loss at sea. He mulled the second half of that over in his mind as he waited for the thunder to follow the lightning. That which is returned is not returned. The thought finished in his mind, and the aging captain closed his eyes to the cold storm air blowing into the coast, begging for the crash of thunder. Elias pushed himself tighter against the alley wall, feeling the broken brick wetness cooling his cheek and soaking into his torn suit jacket. His left hand crept up to his heart, which beat so loud in his ears he could barely hear the din of the bar around the corner, much less the sounds he was actually straining to hear. Horses' hooves. The whip of wind through a long jacket. Possibly, there was nothing to be worried about. Possibly... He'd just seen the movement of a curtain, heard the inconstant prancing of a wounded horse. Possibly, he'd had too many drinks waiting for the blasted ship to finally arrive in port, and he was just sprinting around the wharf for no reason. 
scaring whores with his frenzied, darting eyes and making men suspicious. Making an ass of himself. Then he heard it. The noise. The worst one he could hear. The whistling. The goddamn whistling. The hoofs came next. A horse at a saunter, moving down the shining midnight cobbles toward the alley he'd ducked into. Its steps were only slightly offbeat, the hoof with the broken ankle stamping just out of time. He dared a glance out into the alley and their eyes met, him and the rider, and he broke into a run. Elias bolted across the street, risking exposure to avoid getting caught against the cliffs behind him. The wounded horse whinnied, and he felt something pass behind him to skitter down the street. He rounded the corner at the back of the buildings and tripped into a half-rotted wooden railing and went through the thing. For a moment he was falling, and then he was rolling over blunt hunks of rock and grass, not knowing whether he should try to stop himself. He finally came to rest in a trickling gutter, surprising himself with how quickly he managed to jump to his feet and continue on, not daring a look back and screaming when he heard another whistle and then the loud thunk of something burying itself in a wooden door beside his head. If he paused at all, it was only long enough to touch the heavy red envelope in his jacket pocket. The next alley led him into a deep crowd of drunken Catholics, singing and raising fat glasses of beer over their heads. Only a handful seemed to notice him or even seemed shocked or concerned about how shabby he was. They merely stepped out of his way and continued talking and singing their inane songs. When he looked back over his shoulder, he could see the rider, the shape of him at least, sitting tall atop his horse in the alley. God damn it, Elias whispered under his breath, watching the figure stride out of sight. He tried to keep track of where the thing was going, but he couldn't make heads or tails of the shadows through the carousing mass. These were the German sort of Catholics, obnoxiously tall people, many of them done up in costumes and even wearing absurd headpieces. He pushed his way through them, trying to find a good middle ground between the edge of the crowd and the alleys the rider had disappeared into. His only option was to get to the pier, that was evident enough. They'd learned the thing had enough troubles with rivers and lakes that the ocean herself should prove more than enough to get it off Elias's trail for good. That had been the plan when he got here. That and making the handoff at the mermaid right after her arrival. But the goddamned mermaid hadn't arrived, and the rider had caught up with him. Now he could either count the money as lost and run, or stay and die. Kellen had gotten greedy and stayed back in Utah. And look how that had turned out. Elias found himself short of breath and stumbled. Somebody had spilled something warm on him, one of those goddamn Germans. He touched the wet spot on his back and returned a hand and forearm shining red with blood. That's not right, he thought to himself. Curious German faces looked down at him. One of them asked if he was okay, and he slapped at the man, a gesture so weak it was interpreted as asking for help to his feet. A crowd had gathered around Elias, and they were now speaking in rough and worried voices to each other. They started carrying him in the direction of the buildings he'd run from, toward the rider. No! He yelled, twisting wildly. Something gave in his back, and he screamed all the louder, 
The Germans began screaming too, clearly trying to get him to stop moving. None of them seemed to see the rider there in the shadows between the buildings. The eyeless flap of skin over its face catching an errant breeze as it adjusted itself on its saddle. Elias realized he was looking at Kellen's face. Get, get the fuck off me, he screamed, finally fumbling his way out of the Germans' hands. They shouted amongst each other and pointed at him, pleaded with him to calm down. He pulled out his pistol and fired into the air. The report was pathetic, a little crack, but it made the Germans duck down and back away from him. He tried to holster the thing but dropped it. The Germans screamed, expecting it to go off, but it merely lay there in the quickening rain. He bent and scraped it off the ground, stumbling and dropping to his knees as he did so. Get the... get the fuck away from me, he said, looking through the crowd to the thing watching him from atop its horse. He pushed himself to his feet, leaving a scarlet cloud in the water on the pavement. Then he holstered the gun, rose, and limped away. Sue made her way to the train station, walking easy and keeping her chin low enough to cover her face with her hat. There hadn't been any hang-ups since she'd left the tenement, but a stillness in the air had her worried. The lawman types didn't play around with commotion and all that get-your-hands-up nonsense she saw at the shows. They just jammed a gun up into your kidney and let you know the score. You be good now, a familiar voice said in her head. She sucked her teeth and then pinched herself when she realized she was absentmindedly rubbing a spot on her back. Get yourself together, Sulame, she said to herself. Just hop on that boxcar and get. Hello, sir, Sue said to the man at the ticket counter. He gave her a tight look when he realized she was a woman in mostly men's clothing. She took her hat off and held it in front of her chest. I'd like to inquire after some passage, if you don't mind. She gave him a smile she figured didn't help her cause much, given his stiffness, but didn't let herself dwell on it. To where, ma'am? He asked. He had a squeaky voice for a fat fella. Um, Sue said. She hadn't really thought that out yet. What do you got leaving out east in the next hour? He gave her an appraising look. We don't allow whoring on our trains, ma'am, he said. Sue snorted at him. You play baseball, Tubby? She asked. His eyes widened. Because that was your first strike. Excuse me? I'm heading east, Sue said. I'd like to leave in the next hour. What do you got headed east? The man sighed and pointed to the board behind him. It had all of its twelve departure slots filled with the same two cities, Portland and Reno. Which is that one? Portland. There are trains leaving for Portland all night, but it's north of us, ma'am, he said. If you want to go east, then Reno is your only option, I'm afraid. Sue sucked her teeth. The rhythmic noise it made clearly irritated the clerk, but she ignored him. I know about Reno, she said. That's out in the desert, right? Copper mines and such. I suppose so, the clerk said. 
Line goes past there, just runs up to the Rockies, doesn't it? Sue asked. Not quite, he replied. It gets there eventually, but our line takes one first to Salt Lake City, and then there are routes up into the Dakotas and the like, but that's not exactly east. Where is it you're trying to end up? Hmm, Sue said, leaning on his ticket counter with one elbow. Dunno, really. Just not California. I'm damn well sick of this place. I suppose that, what's it called where the president lives? Washington, D.C.? He gave her an appalled look and nodded. I suppose that's fine. How far east is that? All the way, right? About as far as you can go without getting your toes wet. He replied dryly. Are your trains leak? Sue asked, chuckling when he gave her another of his goofy, wide-eyed looks. I'm just joshing you there. I know what you mean. How do I get out that way without, uh, without going to Salt Lake? Without going to Salt Lake... He asked. Yes, sir. You want to skip it or just... I don't want to go there at all, in fact, Sue said, tapping her hat on the counter and looking around the station. There were a few law-looking types, but none that seemed much interested in her. She sucked her teeth and then smiled at the man behind the counter. I don't care for much of them of the Mormon persuasion. This piqued his interest for some reason. Oh, are you a true Christian? He asked. She could tell this had somehow got his color up. Those people are an abomination. Making up a cult is one thing. They are everywhere in this godforsaken state, but basing it on the one true faith is an absolute blasphemy. He patted his neck like saying all that had gotten his collar hot. Well, I ain't any sort of Christian, that's for sure, Sue said. The man's face returned to its earlier, poutier state, which made Sue feel compelled to add, They are a, what you said, an abomination, murderers and rapists, and uh, what they did to y'all Christians, stealing your Jesus and that, real awful, blasphemers, surely. The man decided that was fine enough middle ground to find friendly terms with Sue, and he sighed and leaned forward over the counter. Sue took the hint and leaned in closer. Might I assume that you're a rough sort of lady? He asked. Yep, she said, tilting her head. Though it is nice you thinking of me as a lady. He rolled his eyes in a way that told her he thought anything but. The passenger lines are being booked up and down all the lines coast to coast right now. He whispered. There's some big festival in St. Louis that people are flocking to and it's gummed up the works for normal passenger cars. He raised a finger when she opened her mouth. But the industrial lines are still up and running for their own reasons, and there's a train leaving here on a straight shot for the East Coast tomorrow. It's a local outfit called Blackwell, and they're hiring security for the trip. Why ain't they just loading it up with Pinkertons like everybody else? Sue asked. The ticket clerk shrugged and looked around as though he half expected one of those bloodthirsty privateers might be lurking around his booth. I heard it was the Pinkertons who muddied those waters first, he said, hired by somebody else to rustle the cargo. Rustle the cargo, Sue quoted with a grin. Boy, you are one class A gossip, aren't you? He seemed to take that as a compliment. 
How's one go about fighting this Blackwell fella? He's got offices a couple blocks away from the entrance to Concourse B, the man said, pointing across the station to a set of distant double doors. He fumbled a card out of his pocket and scribbled his name down on it. And hand them this if you get the job. They pay a commission on recruitment. Sue took the card and looked it over, noting the man's name was Maurice. Well, thank you, Maurice, she said, winking at him and tucking the card away in her coat pocket. I'll be sure to mention you. Moira yawned and did her best to keep the long hem of her dress from dipping down into the persistent muck covering the docks. It was far, far too late at night for this sort of thing, but her father had absolutely insisted they get an early start on things so as not to inconvenience Mr. Blackwell. She highly, highly doubted that curiosity of a man would even allow Tolliver Loeb the opportunity to inconvenience him, and had suggested as much. But here they were, all the same. She adjusted her parasol to look up into the shadows of the SS Karen O'Brady, trying to find some hint of her father in all that darkness. He really was ill-suited to this sort of work, inspecting cargo and interacting with sailors and laborers, and likely he was causing some disturbance while the men tried to go about their jobs. He dragged her along on the auspices that she was, functionally, cargo as well which meant he had to ensure she got on board Mr. Blackwell's train at the same time as everything else, leaving her with little to occupy herself. Moira huffed and spun her parasol, watching the water spray away in the lantern light. A man said behind her, clearing his throat. She turned to see a severe-looking, short man with dark eyes dabbing water off his face. His hair was unkempt and dipped down to his chin, which along with his scraggly handlebar mustache, made him look somewhat like a Scottish terrier. Moira stifled a short laugh and apologized. My lord, I am so sorry, sir, she said. I had no idea you were behind me. Yes, well, I am, he said, brushing beads of water off his jacket. His voice had a light, foreign inflection to it. Russian, she thought, or something similarly Slavic. It's not entirely your fault, however. I should have excused myself when passing you. He gave her a slight nod and grabbed the handle of the large pool cart he'd been dragging behind him. The thing was stacked with bags and boxes. Are you new to these shores? Moira asked, nodding at his luggage. He gave her a long look, clearly thinking about just pushing on, but ultimately deciding to be polite. Yes, he said. Yes and no. I am just arrived, but I have been to America many times before. He gave a look toward the east. In every other case, I arrived and stayed in New York City and in Boston. Baltimore sometimes. This is my first time here. He gave an ugly look to the port around them, which it fairly deserved. If Moira had her way, she'd never come near this disgusting swamp of dry docks and ship smoke. What brings you to California, then? She asked. He sighed. I am not... 
I am not accustomed to answering so many questions from a stranger, he said, taking his hat off. My name is Vasily, Vasily Tovarish. He rested his hand against his chest and reached out a hand to Moira. And you? Moira, she said. Moira Loeb. Well met, he said. Now, if you'll excuse me, I must find my way to some lodging. He went to pull the card and cursed when he got stuck on a raised plank in the boardwalk. Then he began to cuss at the thing in short, irritated bursts, which only reinforced her idea of him as a Scotty dog. She put a hand over her mouth and chuckled. I see this amuses you, he said, sounding angry but looking more flustered than anything. Only slightly, sir, I am sorry, Moira replied. She took a step forward lifting her umbrella so the two of them were almost sharing it. She lay a finger on the worn metal pull bar. Could I offer you some assistance? He raised his eyebrows. Will you pull the cart for me? He asked. No, of course not, she said, balancing her parasol slightly forward as though to tap his head, though she came nowhere close. I introduced myself as Moira Loeb, and though you may not have made the connection... That's Moira Loeb of the Comstock Loeb Shipping and Parceling Service. Or just Loeb Enterprises. This is your husband's business? Vasily asked, clearly interested. How dare you? She replied in a light voice, giving Vasily a wink and a tilt of her head. I am only 19, sir, far, far too young to be married off to some rotten old captain of industry type. Vasily shuffled, clearly ready to make some apology, but she gave a soft laugh and let him off the hook. Comstock Loeb is my grandfather, Mr. Tavarish. He lives in Pittsburgh, where the company offices are. My father, Tolliver, is up on this mighty vessel here, facilitating the offloading of some cargo. She waved her parasol at the eight horse-drawn wagons waiting beside the offloading area. We have a fine array of conveyance for both person and parcel if a man such as yourself might find a need for such things. She grinned and suppressed a small urge to dance when she saw the look on his face. It was a rare thing for her to make a sale, given she generally wasn't allowed to, but if she managed to close this, she could get herself a commission, which meant some of her own money she could decide when to spend. The family rules were generally stacked flatly against women, but the commission statute stipulated a payout in any case. I, um, Vasily said. She saw him tug at the cart behind him, testing the weight of it even as he tested his conviction to continue carrying the damn thing. I have business in St. Louis. What would it take to get me to St. Louis with your Loeb Enterprises? Moira rested her parasol against her shoulder and spun it, thinking over the trip costs and guessing at the weight of the man's luggage. It didn't seem all that much, especially compared to the barley sacks and woodstock they were usually moving. I'd say $110, Moira said. He took a deep breath when she quoted him the price. He gave her a flat look. 80, he replied. Moira couldn't keep herself from grinning. We are offering you a direct shot, she replied. Straight through the mountains, through the plains all the way to St. Louis with minimal stops. 
every passenger line is going to be four or five times longer of a trip with their stopping at every little station, and there's no guarantee you're getting on anything tonight, tomorrow, or the next day without a ticket. He frowned. We're leaving just after sunup, and I can get you a spot for, say... How about we call it a hundred flat, if you shake on it now? Ninety, he said. I have not even talked to anybody else. He did his best to remain stolid, but she could tell he didn't know who anybody else might be, much less where he could find them. Well, sir, I don't really want you to, Moira said with a wink. She heard a great ruckus break out aboard the ship, and they both looked up to see the cargo crane working something out of the hold. Shadows and silhouettes danced around that part of the ship, flitting up the lines and skirting back and forth at their unseen tasks. As they watched, a great rectangular lump rose into the air, squealing on its tethers. The sound seemed to lick down into Moira's bones, and she found herself squirming for a moment. One hundred, she said, not looking at Vasily. His eyes weren't on her either, but on the black mass swinging overhead. One hundred, and I'll promise you a sleeping berth, and all you can eat and drink at no extra cost. Fine, Vasily said. He spoke like a man waking from a dream. When she turned back to him, he was pressing a handkerchief to his face. She saw a little red spider embroidered on it that she found adorable as much as odd. He tucked it away and took a deep breath before pulling his wallet out and fishing through it. Moira was surprised to see him bring out a crisp hundred-dollar note. She held out her hand and he almost set it in her palm. I do not want to load my own luggage, he said, or to drag it around. I am exhausted. You shall want for nothing, sir, Moira said, plucking the hundred from his fingers and walking to the nearest cart. She folded the bill into a tidy little square and tucked it away beside her left breast, giving it a proud little pat she hoped nobody noticed. Garvey, she shouted up to the coachman. He shuddered awake and looked down at her with a yawn, pushing his tattered felt hat back on his head. Yes, um, Miss Loeb, he said, looking around the seat beside him. He fished up a cigarette and lit it with a match. The wagon was the sort with a comfortable seat and a low canvas overhang that even now was steadily dripping from the growing storm. It was a storm, too, Moira thought. If her father didn't finish his business soon... She was going to take Garvey, whose wagon contained all their personal luggage, and head right to the train platform before she ended up in a downpour. That gentleman over there? She turned and pointed to Vasily, who gave a tip of his head to the both of them. Has retained the services of Loeb Enterprises and will require your assistance in loading his effects onto this wagon. Oh, Miss Loeb, he grumbled. You know your daddy said not to be doing that. Moira rolled her eyes and turned slightly away from him, pulling two loose bills free of the space beside her right breast. The movement required a somewhat unladylike adjustment of her bustier, but she managed well enough. She held up two dollars and Garby sighed. You let me fish them out next time and I'll do it for free, he said with a grin. The man was almost as old as her father, and smelled like fish and whiskey. 
She pulled one of the dollars back out of her fist and he huffed and jumped down off the driver's platform, snatching the remaining bill and walking toward Vasily. She wasn't entirely sure, but she thought she saw him put the paper beneath his nose before tucking it away in his pocket. What a disgusting man, she muttered to herself. How rude, how vile, how rude, someone whispered in her ear. Moira snapped around, looking behind her and clutching the parasol to her chest like a bat. She saw nothing but the side of the massive cargo ship, bucking and bouncing gently against the pier with the surging tide. The constant whining thrum it made she normally found relaxing, but tonight it sounded menacing for some reason. Awful, just awful, the voice said, and this time it was in front of her. Or not quite. Rather... It was seemingly moving away down the line of Loeb Enterprise's wagons. Always want to look, always want to to listen, never want to listen. Moira shivered and kept walking down the line, passing beneath the shadows of the covered wagons. They shifted and shimmered in the inconstant reddish light of the rows of lanterns lining the shoreside portion of the pier. The cargo ship was dark and tall beside her a lightless etching into the subtle nighttime blues of the wet sky. Miss Lowe, the voice said. We'd love your opinion on this, please. Surely, she whispered under her breath. Just give me a moment. Then she was standing before it, a black pile of heavy timbers laying in the back of the last wagon. The boards were all thick enough to serve as support beams in a small home, though interspersed amongst them were dozens of thinner planks and even some oddly shaped pieces that allowed the flickering lantern light to flow through. It danced across her face. Moira felt her own cool hand on her chest. It crept up the goose-pimpled flesh over her bosom, up over her neck and onto her face. Her lips parted slightly, and her forefinger began to brush lightly at her teeth. You there, a man said startling her so badly she nearly tripped on her dress. He pulled at a heavy winch and the boards collapsed against each other, squelching the lantern light that had been dancing over Moira's face. She took a deep breath and looked around, clasping her hands together in front of her breastbone. She let both palms lay flat against her skin as she calmed down, feeling her racing hard and watching the gruff plug of a stevedore strap the load down. Yes? She said still staring at the wood. The pile seemed... harmless now. Though how could it not be? It was nothing more than a stack of irregular lumber, recycled from an old wooden ship, no doubt. Looking harder, she could see things like banisters and hunks of doors mixed in amongst the more massive, squarish pieces. None of that accounted for the fact that her heart seemed ready to burst out of her chest. You work for the man who owns this? He asked. He had an unplaceable accent. No, she said. I'm... I'm the daughter of... Loeb. The... We're moving it. She wanted desperately to cut away the bustier she was wearing. Catching her breath was hard all of a sudden. Not impossible, in fact. You listen to me, girl. The man said, finishing up and walking closer. Moira realized he'd done the entire job with just one hand. His right arm ended in a stump at his elbow. 
The injury that had lost him that limb was still wrapped in a brown-stained bandage. He pointed this ugliness at her. Don't go in amongst the wood, you hear? All you hear is lies. Whispering, spitting, none of it nothing but lies. Do not go in amongst the wood. You tell them what walks with you wherever this goes. Understand? Moira nodded and then jumped toward the man when a great, hollow noise boomed behind her. She turned to see the ship had knocked up against the pier, and the sound was its own guts ringing like a bell. Then Moira noticed her parasol was laying on the pier ahead of her, the rim of it blackened by the filthy boards. She realized she was sopping wet now, her hair and the lace of her dress hanging limp in the rain. She stepped forward to pick it up, and the stevedore grabbed her by the neck like a kitten and jerked her backward. She screamed and would have kicked the man if a lump of wood hadn't come crashing down atop the parasol a second later. The impact cracked the heavy boards of the pier, almost managing to shatter them wholesale. The horse at the head of the cart whinnied and stamped its feet, but the driver managed to calm it. It don't burn, the man whispered in her ear. His breath smelled like salt and smoke. It won't let you leave it, neither. Stick to your schedule. Make your drops. Don't go in amongst the wood. Slip line! A man shouted down from the cargo spaces above the boat. It's all well! Slip line! The stevedore let her go and took up a lantern from beside the wagon. He waved it twice and then flipped his sodden hat over the front of it in an indiscernible pattern. All's well! He shouted up. A second later, the hoist pulled the load off the broken planks, and the man set to putting it in place on the next wagon down. He said nothing more to Moira, and she all but ran back to see to Mr. Tavarish, driving the unpleasantness from her mind step by step. Sue found the Blackwell Corporation building easily enough. There wasn't much to it, just a block of red brick and brass on a street of other anonymous buildings. A scattering of homes and shops lined the street, but other than Loeb Enterprises, the only other sign seemed to be for this Blackwell fellow's business. The door opened on the second knock. Hello? Sue asked after a long moment where nobody said anything. She heard a rush of footsteps and a small, mousy woman appeared. Hello? She asked. Hello? Sue repeated. Are you going to let me in or what? Let you? In? Ma'am, I'm not sure who you even are, the woman replied, clearly putting her foot behind the door. Why'd you open the goddamn door for me, lady? Sue asked. She realized she was losing her temper and took a breath. I'm sorry about that. I'm a touch tired. But the question stands. I didn't, the woman started. And then she looked away and started tapping her foot. Are you here for Mr. Blackwell? Is there any other reason someone might stop by? Sue asked, trying not to be impatient. She was starting to feel there was some sort of horse shittery going down with this whole thing. No, the woman said, voice cold. Please come in. She opened the door onto a room that had been nice at some point, 
but had long since lapsed into disrepair. It looked more like a ballroom than an office. The two-story front windows were draped with heavy red curtains that piled over the ground. Dirty marble tiles served as the only flooring, save for a great purple carpet with some odd sort of symbol on it. Sue felt an ugly tickle in her mind when she looked at it, but she just wriggled a pinky in her ear until it went away. Y'all some sort of Freemasons or what? She asked. The woman gave her an alarmed look but didn't address the question. She led Sue to a wide marble staircase. It rose up to a landing on the second floor and then a hallway busy with doors. A low, lonely sconce glowed at the furthest end of the hall, its weak light swallowed by the thick purple carpeting. Down at the end, the woman told her. You don't say, Sue mumbled, stepping into the hallway. Everything felt muted around her, dull. Sue looked back only once to see the little woman's light sinking into the bleak shadows beneath the second floor railing. Beyond, the moon shined through the windows to smolder in the red curtains. She hoped there was a hallway of some sort there. The thought of the lady just sitting in the dark all night sent a chill up Sue's back. Hello? Hello? She called through the door, knocking on it when she arrived. It's open, a man's voice said. Please, come inside. Elias forced himself toward the docks, now able to hear nothing but the constant whistling. It seemed distant, farther than it really was. He fell against a waste bin and tried to catch his breath which seemed permanently stuck in his throat. Every small, sucking gasp smelled of the sea and rain. He could almost feel salt-wet ropes in his hands, the sway of shipboards beneath his feet. He made it to the stone breakwater overlooking Glasswater Harbor when the rider finally got to him. The pain was so minimal now it was almost non-existent. There was only a growing feeling of coldness, distance, he didn't need to look down to know there was three feet of bony spear sticking out of his stomach. The liver, he thought to himself. Kellen said it always went for the liver. So he was dead, though not quite gone. There was such serenity in the thought he could almost weep. Perhaps he was weeping. He raised a hand to check his face and felt a jerk in his shoulder. The hand never rose. Something flicked through the air beside his ear and his body lightened. Water splashed up from the gutter beside him, wetting his trousers. He could feel the heat of the wounded horse's breath on his neck. And he turned. The rider soared above him, tall as mountains and gods might be. Raindrops clicked against Kellen's excised face beneath the thing's hat. Cords of woven hair, maybe also from Kellen, held it in place. Looking for this, right? Elias said. When he turned, he could feel the spear the thing had thrown into him was now gone. Blood gushed from the open wound, coating his legs and filling his boots. The scarlet envelope he pulled out of his jacket was still bone dry. Despite having been in a pocket so sticky with blood, he almost couldn't pull his hand free of it. The rider stretched an open palm to Elias. 
I hope you keep looking for it forever, Elias said, still barely able to talk. Despite that, his words rang clear as a bell, loud enough even to push the writer back some. Elias flicked the letter into the air and closed his eyes, pressing his bloody hand to his face for a reason he couldn't quite discern. In any case, it felt like the right thing to do. His hand stuck to his skin for almost the entirety of the fall, only separating at the last immediate second before Elias's severed head struck the ground. The man, Blackwell's, office was about what Sue would expect from any lawyer type. Lots of gold and leather, but on top of that, so much dark purple cloth and carpet and drapery she felt like she was sitting in a room-sized coffin. She took a seat when he bade her to and set her hat on her knee. They sat, looking at each other for a long second before he spoke. You want to take a job protecting my interests, he said, drumming his fingers on the desk. The man was built like God had been in a rush that day and drawn him up in harsh, hurried strokes. His body was long and sharpish, angular, and with a fair-sized, almost ball-shaped head perched up on his shoulders. His eyes were broad and colored a deep purple-gold Sue could make out well, despite the poor light in the office. He rubbed his hands together. I didn't say that, Sue said. Yet, at least. This ain't some press gang operation, is it? You ain't about to have six big fellas rush out here and put me on a boat at gunpoint, right? To her surprise, he laughed. It was a perfectly normal, perfectly human sound. An odd consideration, she thought to herself. How much she thought of it as perfect. Practiced, even. You didn't, he said. But there's only one reason you'd be at this office at this time of night. My agents are all around town scaring up bodies for me. Bodies? Workers, he clarified. The term is uncouth, I suppose, but beside that point, I require approximately six workers. That is. All right, then count me in, Sue said, crossing her arms. He raised an eyebrow. Do you want to know the compensation? He asked. You'll pay me fair, she said. Guard job always pays fair if the man wants to get it where it's going. You'll have food, too, and lodging on that account. I need a gun. I don't carry guns. This job is, how one might say, plain clothes, Blackwell said. No open gun carrying off the train, though we'll have rifles on board and ammunition in case of problems. All right, then. And you're going to... Sue started, leading him to the destination. He smiled. Charleston, West Virginia, is our final destination, Blackwell said. Though there will be numerous stops along the line. Such as? Sue asked. He smiled and didn't answer. She nodded. All right, then. How's this go? He reached into a drawer on the side of his desk and removed a thick sheaf of paper, turning it around and setting it in front of her. She pulled out the card the ticket man had given her and dropped it beside the papers before taking them and looking them over. He's the one sent me here. Ah, Blackwell said, 
slipping the card into a drawer. She made a show of reading through the contract and then held out a hand to him. He smiled and handed her a pen, which she used to sign the contract before tossing it back onto the desk. Well, when do we leave? She asked. In just a few hours, Blackwell said, clucking his tongue and looking the contract over. He looked up at her. Would you like a copy? She shook her head and flicked her fingers at him. He chuckled to himself and put the thing away. Platform three, at the station just behind this building. The engine in question will be the only one there, for security's sake, understand? He gave her a knowing look. You are welcome to sleep there if you have no other lodging. Sue grinned and stood, tipping her hat to him before slipping it back on her head. I think I'll do just that, sir, she said. He watched her go and then turned his eyes to the back wall, waiting in silence as the lanterns in the room dimmed slowly through the lingering night. Eventually, the rising storm broke, and when the lightning flashed, it shone in unblinking eyes. Vasily stopped and watched the curiosity fluttering in the breeze over the dock. He had offloaded his belongings and was now returning the cart he'd borrowed, without asking, to the place he'd found it. It was a necessary rudeness at the time, but there was no reason to not correct his indiscretion further down the line. His reward for this kindness was this oddity he alone seemed party to, a red bit of paper fluttering perfectly in place above the ground. It was strange enough that he looked to see if anybody else was around to witness it, but alas, he was. As ever. Alone. He sighed and stepped closer to the thing, jumping back slightly when it plummeted and then caught a stiff breeze just above the ground. It soared directly at his legs and he jumped awkwardly out of its way, trying at the same time to catch it. His fingers brushed the damn thing, but he couldn't quite get a hold of it without letting go of his borrowed cart. The paper landed a few meters away from him, tilting upward and spinning slowly across the ground. He cursed, looked at his stolen cart, and then let it go to chase the infuriatingly curious thing down the pier. Vasily managed to catch it just a few moments later, pinning it to the ground with his boot with an awkward sort of dance step. He held the thing up in the air, looking around and shouting. Aha! he said turning to see the cart he'd been pushing roll slowly over the edge of the dock into the water. A second later, the massive hull of a shipping vessel smashed it to nothing against the stone pier. Ah, well, now you are a thief, Vasily, and a vandal. For a bittersweet moment, he heard his wife bursting into quiet laughter as he admonished himself. The sound was so present in his mind he thought he could reach out and touch her. She would be standing to his right and slightly behind him, the tail of his coat pinched in her hand as was her way. The hurt this caused him almost made him ball up the little red envelope he'd worked so hard to catch, but he stopped himself in time and looked at the thing. The distraction was welcome. It was sealed, unmarked, and unstamped. A perfect curiosity. He ran his fingers over the shape inside and tried to figure out what it might be. The envelope was just fat enough it could be a ring or a coin in there, but the paper was thick enough to keep its secrets. Perhaps later, Vasily said to the thing, tucking it into his jacket pocket. A commotion arose just then, further down the pier. 
He walked a bit closer and saw several dozen men gathered around a spot at the base of the seawall rising on his left. Even from a distance, he could see them dragging what looked to be a body from the water. Vasily watched them a moment longer, idly tapping his finger over the letter in his breast pocket. He considered going over and offering what assistance he could, and then wondered if any of them might have spotted a wet, sullen Russian stealing one of their carts for his luggage. He figured he was of better use to himself not bothering with such things, and turned back to rejoin Miss Loeb and her father's convoy. He waited, as was his writ and warrant. To do as needed to be done beneath the moon would have been fine, but to ply his trade in such a crowded place was unwise, and invited attentions he could do without. There would be no danger to his person, but the threat of discovery and all the visitations it might bring were never worth the second spared. To hunt was to wait, and he was a hunter. And so he waited, watching from the shadows as the man, Elias, was pieced back together and cleaned and left in the cold stone cellar of the morgue. The body man there was the curious sort, but not the greedy sort. So Elias was reassembled in his entirety. None of what he'd been born with, save what the rider had already taken, was pulled to be sold or eaten. The body men did that sometimes, which made the lot of them no better than carrion eaters. All men were carrion eaters now, though, it seemed. They did not hunt, and those that did did so for foolish, boyish reasons. To hunt without need was to invite a long winter, and any existence without the need to hunt was no life worth living. It took three days for them to put the body in the earth, and he was glad of their good treatment of it. No poison in the veins, no scattering of lye. The man Elias was taken by cart to a small hold in a potter's field, and left there atop a dozen other nameless dead. Given to the sky, unblemished and untainted, as all things should be. There was no need for digging, and when the night fell, the rider gathered the body and took it inland. He stoked a fire and dressed the body beneath the leaves of an ash tree. There wasn't blood enough to make the best stew, which was a shame, but the liver and intestines he cut free and fed to his horse. It cried as it ate, a noise too beautiful for the stone walls of the city. The rider relished in the sound, sitting still for a long while. He took the man Elias's skin and made a rough-stitched bag of it, hanging it over the fire and filling its innards with water from a stream, and Elias's bones as he cut them away. Only the face and the crown of Elias's skull did not become the bag. These the rider set aside for later. He sang as he worked, an old song that lulled the horse to sleep. There were no lyrics, merely melody and feeling the sense of pictures and the smell of old winds. He cut free Elias's cold heart and set it in the branches of the ash tree, bowing before it three times as he sang. Then he pulled free the rest of Elias's organs, giving the brain and the lungs and stomach to the birds circling overhead. They ate and joined the rider's song. Soon, all was in the bag or returned to the earth, and the rider set to work on Elias's face making it into a fitting mask. The skin proved false in his hand, however, 
and the mask was ruined. The rider gave it to the fire with a derisive toss and watched as the dead man's flesh curled to nothing. By morning, the fire had dimmed and the bag was scorched black and shrunken. The rider knelt before it and removed the mask of the man, Kellen, touching his forehead to the earth and then slitting open the skin. He drank the jellied stew inside until nothing of it was left and felt the power of the life it had lived filling him. He gave water to the ash tree and saddled his horse, looking to the east, not needing eyes to see his quarry. He tied the skin of the man Kellen across his face and rode. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. 
Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.